0: some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. History became legend. Legend became myth. Galadriel, the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. History podcast, where we set the historical record straight no matter who it might offend. I'm Paul, and today we're not looking at one specific segment of history, but rather something I'm surprised I haven't done yet 10 big myths that continue to persist in spite of all logic. Myth and history have been intertwined for as long as humans have walked the earth. In ancient times, they were often hard to separate. And in several persistent cases, we've done no better in modern times. Sometimes it's the result of laziness on the part of both scholars and students. And sometimes it's the result of people wanting to believe something so badly that they don't let facts get in the way, as in the case of a recent American election. Today, I want to dispel 10 common myths that have persistently endured, some for centuries and some for millennia. We managed to correct other common myths like young George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. Let's get rid of these as well. Number one, Napoleon Bonaparte was short. This seems like a good place to start as it's the most enduring of the myths about the French emperor in general. Even now we say that a short person with an overinflated ego has a Napoleon complex. In reality, he wasn't short at all, at least not for the time in which he lived. At five seven, he was actually above average height for the time. Part of the myth comes from the fact that his height was reported as five foot two, but this reflected the French measurement of the era, which was longer than the British one. His British enemies knew this, of course, but highlighted the shorter measurement to mock a hated and feared adversary. If you diminish the demon, he becomes less fearsome. Another reason he was thought to be short was that he always surrounded himself with his imperial guard who were without exception veterans far taller than average. You don't project power with tiny bodyguards. Number two, Henry VIII beheaded all six of his wives when they didn't produce male heirs. This may be the most enduring myth about Henry. In point of fact, he only, in quotes, executed two of his wives. The best way to remember the fates of his wives is using the old line, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. He divorced his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, after unsuccessfully seeking an annulment from the Pope. Catherine's nephew was the Holy Roman Emperor and a crucial ally of the Pope, so this was a futile endeavor from the start. But Henry had fallen in love with Anne Boleyn and also needed a male heir, so Catherine was sent away, still very much alive. Anne wasn't as fortunate, but not because she produced only a daughter, and that only daughter just happened to become Elizabeth I, maybe English, England's greatest monarch ever. It was Anne's alleged infidelity that was her undoing. Jane Seymour, wife number three, gave Henry the son he so desperately craved, but she died shortly after giving birth. His subsequent marriage to Anne of Cleves was, arra- was an arranged one that Henry never really wanted, and he quickly divorced her, but they remained on civil terms. Catherine Howard was beheaded also because of infidelity, real or imagined, and Catherine Parr was queen at the time Henry himself died and thus survived him. Henry indeed wanted a son to continue the Tudor dynasty, but he didn't kill off all of his wives to get one. Number three, Shakespeare didn't write the plays attributed to him. This remains the most persistent myth about Shakespeare and perfectly demonstrates our nearly pathological need to deny that a creative genius could actually be a creative genius. Many times, this denial is a simple case of envy, but in Shakespeare's case, the myth that he didn't write the plays that bear his name comes more from class prejudice than envy. Shakespeare was a commoner. He was no peasant, but he certainly wasn't part of the nobility. He was basically middle class, and in England of the 17th and 18th centuries, commoners weren't supposed to produce works of genius, especially not the volume that Shakespeare produced. This is why the names most often put forward as the so-called real authors are from the noble class like sir francis bacon and the earl of oxford nearly all scholars today agree that william shakespeare wrote the plays there are dozens of references to shakespeare as a playwright made during his lifetime including by ben Jonson, a fellow playwright who was no friend of shakespeare it's been erroneously claimed that he had knowledge of aristocratic and courtly life no commoner could possess. Yet John Dryden, an English poet who lived during the generation following Shakespeare's and who was a member of the gentry, wrote that Shakespeare's portrayal of the nobility were wildly inaccurate. One humorous aspect of the numerous alternative authors conspiracists have proposed is that many of them were dead before Shakespeare's writing career ended. These included Edward de Vere, Edmund Spencer, and amazingly Queen Elizabeth I. Never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Number four, the Caesarean section was named after Julius Caesar. Though many still believe this today, Julius Caesar was not delivered by Caesarean section and the procedure is not named after him. The procedure is recorded even before Caesar's lifetime and, more importantly, was only performed in an attempt to save the child when the mother had died or was clearly dying during childbirth. Historians record that Caesar's mother not only survived, but was still alive until at least his invasion of Britain and thus the procedure would not have been used. Number five, pirates buried their treasure. As kids, we all dreamed of finding pirates buried treasure. Unfortunately for us, and adult treasure hunters today, while a large number of merchant ships carrying gold and silver from the New World back to Spain and Portugal did sink on the way, and thus have been discovered over the centuries since, pirates weren't really into burying their ill-gotten gains. Just like sailors on shore leave today, pirates would spend their loot the first chance they got, most often on gambling, rum, and women. There are only two recorded exceptions to this no-burying treasure rule. Captain Kidd, who allegedly buried millions in loot on Gardner's Island at the east end of Long Island and was captured and hanged before he could recover it, and Francis Drake, who buried tons of Spanish gold somewhere along the coast of Panama. Since pirates' lifespan was typically short, it makes perfect sense they wouldn't stick their money in a hole in the ground. Number 6. Captain James Cook discovered the east coast of Australia. Contrary to popular belief, Captain Cook was not the first European to discover Australia. I say European because obviously the indigenous peoples beat him by about 40,000 years and the Chinese had been there by the 4th century BC. But when he reached Australia in 1770, he was also 164 years behind the Dutch explorer Willem Janszoon who landed at the Gulf of Carpentaria in 1606. Two other Dutchmen also beat him, Dirk Hartog in 1616 and Abel Tasman in 1644. Both Tasmania and the Tasman Sea are named after him. Cook wasn't even the first Englishman to land in Australia. That honor goes to William Dampier, a British pirate. Cook gets the credit because the victor writes the history. The British were, at the time, in fierce competition with the Dutch, and were ultimately victorious. Britannia ruled the waves and much of the world, and Britain wrote the history that made Cook the one who discovered Australia. They could have chosen Dampier, but a Royal Navy captain makes a better hero than a pirate. Number 7. Ferdinand Magellan was the first man to circumnavigate the globe. Here's one more myth from the age of sail that's persisted for centuries, that Ferdinand Magellan was the first to circumnavigate the globe. Now in Magellan's defense, it's not his fault that he didn't complete the -the round-the-world trip. He simply had the misfortune of being killed by natives in the Philippines midway through the journey. However, one of his five ships, and 18 of the original 270 crew, did finish the voyage, returning to Portugal after three years. The captain of that remaining crew was Juan Sebastian Elcano. But as the voyage was originally planned, organized, and led by Magellan, He's the one we remember. Sometimes your vision is what gets you the credit. Number eight, Martin Luther announced his break with the Catholic Church on October 31st, 1517 by nailing his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. This is a foundational myth, not only about Luther himself, but about the Reformation in general. In reality, there's no proof that Luther ever actually did this. There's no record of the event until more than 30 years later. It is a fact that he sent the 95 Theses to the Archbishop of Mainz for his review, but even if he did post them on the church door as well, it was simply the equivalent of inviting a debate among scholars, much like posting an event on a college bulletin board today. It definitely was not an announcement that he had broken with Rome. That would come later. Something rarely mentioned is that the majority of the points in his theses were in line with Catholic Catholic doctrine at the time, As to the touchstone point reformers pointed to both then and now regarding indulgences, the issue was not that he opposed indulgences, rather he opposed the sale of indulgences as contrary to church teaching and the idea that indulgences were a suitable replacement for repentance. He also rightly opposed the sale of them as a means for raising funds for the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. It should be remembered that at first Luther's only goal was to reform bad church practices of which there were many at the time. There's no question that Pope Leo X was one of a succession of terrible Medici popes. Had Luther and Johann Eck, the papal representative who opposed him, not gotten into such an intractable battle of wills, Luther might today be seen as a church reformer in the mold of St. Francis of Assisi, rather than as a heretical rebel by Catholics and a savior by Protestants. In fact, there might not even be Protestants. Sadly, events raging from the Pope not grasping the gravity of the situation until it was too late, to German princes seizing the opportunity to break from papal control, caused a simple call for reform to spiral out of control. Number nine, the final song played on the Titanic. It is historically accurate and portrayed marvelously in both the 1958 film, A Night to Remember and James Cameron's 1997 Titanic, that the ship's band continue playing on deck as the Titanic went down. What's unlikely is that the final song the band played was the hymn Nearer My God to Thee. The passengers who reported this as the last song escaped the ship well before it sank, while survivors who escaped in the final lifeboat said the band was playing upbeat, popular tunes in order to calm the passengers, which makes more sense. The hymn, however, is a more dramatic choice, and it's the one that is erroneously still believed to be the brave band's last song. Number 10. Roman Gladiators Always Fought to the Death This final myth has been perpetuated by Hollywood films from Spartacus to Gladiator and it existed for millennia before the invention of motion pictures. However, historians have calculated that in the first century, the death rate among gladiators was roughly 10%, a far lower number than any of us would probably have guessed. The reason should be obvious. Like professional athletes today, gladiators were highly trained performers performers who were also huge investments for their owners. In short, they were expensive. There are records indicating that if a gladiator died or was disabled other than at the command of the emperor, the venue hosting the event had to pay a fine to the gladiator's owner. For some gladiators, in fact, it was a lengthy and lucrative career. Definitely not what the movies have taught us. So those are just 10 of the countless historical myths far too many people believe to this day. We need to be vigilant in telling the truth about history because we can't know who we are or where we're headed if we're not honest about who we were and where we've been. Have a great day. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you found it both informative and entertaining. If you'd like to help us keep episodes like this coming, please consider clicking on the support this podcast link in the show notes. It'll go a long way towards helping us create more episodes and hopefully becoming completely ad free. Thanks a lot.